Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 137. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Travis Partington. Hello, Kip. How are you doing? It's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing very well, and it's a pleasure to have you here because today we're going to be starting a series on experience and life in the military, which of course is a very charged topic for a lot of people. But personally, as someone who knows next to nothing about military life, I had a lot of questions. And before we formally begin this topic, would you mind giving the audience a quick summary of your experience in the military and sort of where you've been? Sure, Kip. My military experience started with my grandfathers. They both served in the U.S. Navy in World War II. So I got out of high school, kind of went to college, didn't really think college was easy or hard enough. So I wanted a challenge. I joined the Marine Corps because college was too hard. And in the Marine Corps, I went into a job field called HAWK. And HAWK stands for Hoping All the Way Killer. It's a missile system that shoots down airplanes. And so I was a radar operator for that system. And I went to California for boot camp, Fort Bliss, Texas for my school, and then Yuma, Arizona for the rest of my tour. And I thank you for sharing that. This topic in particular is going to be looking at the transition home from military service and being abroad or perhaps stationed somewhere. And I suppose my first question would be, before you returned home, were there preparations made by commanding officers and other authority figures to help give you a sense of how you might acclimate? And if your experience in your mind wasn't necessarily noteworthy, anything you observed in your fellow Marines? Everybody in the military goes through a thing called TAP, which is Transition Assistance Program. It's a class. It's a one-week class. And they will go through specific things you have to do to get ready for separation. It is generally anywhere from 180 to 90 days out of your end of active service date. So I sat in class and everybody is getting out, but everybody has a different experience because they're going to different places. My experience was unique because I wasn't going back home to Louisiana. I was going here to the Boston, Massachusetts area. Not only did I have to separate from the Marine Corps, I had to learn and understand what a new geographic environment was all about. Little things like how to pronounce Worcester properly, which is Worcester, and the absolute rabid devotion of the Red Sox fans toward their team. My experience for me was it was a huge stressor. I was not going home to friends and family. I was coming here knowing no one, having to get employment, trying to figure out how to navigate certain things like the registry and the veterans reps and other things. It was very different for me. Now, I did have and do have people that are getting out who did serve in combat. And generally, it's a different time. They want to just come home and assimilate normally. Some of them will talk with you about their experiences. Some of them will not. Some of them will transition back to civilian life very smoothly. They'll have a job. Some family member will have a job for them. Some will have to work very hard to try to find employment. What I've noticed with a lot of my buddies who stayed in and are getting out now because it's been 20 years is it's a complete culture shock. They're used to being able to tell somebody, hey, do this, and it's done like that. They're not used to working with people of all ages and demographics who, if they don't build the bridges and relationships, they're just not going to get anything done. And that's a very different feeling for them. Lastly, I would say is they and I did miss the brotherhood that in the Marine Corps, that esprit de corps saying is real. I mean, there are people that I've known for 20 plus years that I still am in contact with because of that bond that we have. And you miss that bond when you get out. And it's not a ding or a negative against civilians. They're trying to understand. It's just they weren't there. It's like me trying to understand childbirth. I'm there. I'm watching it, but I'm not experiencing it. So I just don't know. 
And I really appreciate all of that. There's a lot I'd love to unpack. To start, I'm really curious when you describe the efficiency you and others observe in the Marine Corps that isn't necessarily a one-to-one when translating back to civilian life. Do you think there is a certain expectation of military efficiency that simply isn't present in most sectors of civilian life, whether that is on the job or in a private realm of one's life? If I understand efficiency and how you're saying it, you're saying, you know, hey, do this and it gets done. That's for a couple of reasons. One, there's a hierarchical structure of command. There's a command structure. The person on top tells the person below him, so on and so forth, to get things done. And it's done because at the core of what everybody in the military does, regardless of their branch of service, it is about following orders. Whereas in the civilian world, yes, there is a command structure, but it's much more loosely defined. Someone above you can tell you to do something, but if you have other tasks or directives in front of you, you can allocate to do that when you feel like it sometimes. You have a lot more flexibility to control certain things than you do in the military. Whereas if you don't do what you're supposed to do right then and there, there are consequences, oftentimes negative, for not following orders. And I really appreciate that explanation. One of my first interpretations as you were talking about that efficiency and then went on to talk about brotherhood actually pertained to the idea of mutual relationships in which we do things for others because of our connection to them. And at first I thought, well, in the military, things are done because they need to be accomplished and tasks need to be completed. But then you went on to mention brotherhood, as I suspected you might. And I'd be really curious to hear about certain comparisons you or other Marines might make in transitioning home. Because for many of us, I think family represents the ultimate in terms of intimate connections you will have with other people and the understandings they can provide. But I've often noticed, at least from a distance, that there seems to be a particular bond forged by mutual hardship and difficulties, including military service, particularly in combat scenarios. And so I'd really love to hear how you felt that bond maintained itself or perhaps affected the way you and other Marines observed relationships back home as you transitioned away from military life. Well, Brotherhood starts in military boot camp. Marine Corps boot camp, as an example, is 12 weeks long. It's the longest boot camp in any military service in the world. So those bonds of brotherhood, whether it's eating together, showering together, going on force march together, we do everything together. No one fights alone. So that's automatically ingrained from the minute you step off the bus and onto the yellow footprints. As you go through your military service, whether you serve for four years or 20 years, certain things that we do, whether it's serving in combat or working together, reinforce those bonds. In the civilian life, the only thing I can compare it to, as you said, is family. And families squabble, families fight, families, you know, disagree, sometimes passively, sometimes very actively. But at the end of the day, your family unit is that unit there for you. And that's the same thing with your military family. A friend of mine passed away recently from the military, and even though I hadn't spoken to him every day, I had spoken to him like six months prior to that. That passing really affected me. I felt the loss of those memories and experiences we shared. So I would say, again, that the closest comparison is that close family experience that you're going to have, whether you're in or out of the military. 
And in bringing up the passing of individuals close to us, a large difficulty that I've observed, again, at a distance, is that for members of the military coming home, perhaps after a very long tour, a great deal of elements change in lives back at the States in terms of family or job situations, etc. And I'd be very curious to hear what you felt had changed, perhaps. And I know you were, of course, transitioning to a new location in Boston but what you noticed felt different or perhaps what surprised you that felt the same before and after your time in the service? Well, one thing that became apparent to me coming back from Arizona to here was talking to my friends in Louisiana and Illinois and family in both places was that my friends had kind of moved forward. They either were starting to homeownership, marriages, kids, their 401ks, vacations to Disney World. They had already done all those things, and I had not. I had very little in common with them on certain aspects of their lives. They've already paid off their first car. They've already been getting mortgage applications done. They've been looking at how to do their retirement accounts and their college savings accounts for their children. And a lot of us had not. We had been focused on other things. So even though I was their friend and even though we talked, there were experiences that I had that they couldn't relate to and vice versa. There were experiences that they had already gone through that I had no idea how to really relate to. And so a lot of it was information sharing about how to get me caught up, if you will. And in talking about this phenomenon of you perhaps catching up with their lives, livelihoods, and other transitions they've made, I'd also really like to hear about perhaps a hesitation to bridge that gap to discuss between military and civilian, because I think there can be a great deal of sensitivity and misunderstanding when it comes to discussing military operations in any capacity. As an example, I personally feel a degree of guilt in recognizing that the military as a function of the United States is operating on behalf of American interests and the injuries, casualties, and trauma incurred by members of the military on behalf of citizens like myself leaves me feeling like there is a debt in some sense that I can't necessarily pay. And I describe all of that to say that I suspect perhaps other civilians might feel a similar reluctance, so to speak, to engage with the topic, that they don't know the proper language or terms to approach discussions surrounding military life And with you or other members of the service that you knew, did you ever sense a hesitation or an inability to discuss what I think can be a very sensitive topic? Well, I'll go at this two ways. First, it's two sides of the same coin. We as veterans and military people have to be willing to share with civilians about our experiences as much as possible. We just can't sit there numbly or passively when someone comes up to us and says, thank you for your service. We have to engage with that civilian, say, we appreciate you thinking of us. And if they ask us a question, we have to be able to do that in a non-condescending way. That's that one side of the coin. The other side of the coin you mentioned, you mentioned guilt. And I would encourage anyone not to feel guilty for a couple of reasons. One, when I was growing up and when you were growing up, it wasn't as focused as it is now. And when I say now, Now you can go on social media outlets, YouTube, military channels on TV, and if you want to learn about the military, you can start getting in touch with how the culture works. 
it's just not a forefront like it was back in World War II, the Korean War, where you had factories being built to build bombers and women leaving the home to go build rifles. It's not that way anymore. But you can still engage, even though it's not on the forefront of our national interest. The second part of your question about people being uncomfortable, I think to a small degree, but what I try to do is just talk about what I did. Like if my friend was a car salesman and he's telling me how he's selling a car, I try to very calmly, rationally, and in layman's terms, just tell him what I did. This is how my radar worked. This is how we tracked aircraft. This is how it looked. Here's the experience. If I may, one of the things people ask me about a lot because I was stationed in Arizona was the heat. And I kept hearing that, you know, it's a dry heat out there. And I said, well, you know, 122 degrees is 122 degrees. And we would take tinfoil and crack eggs and we'd take bacon and we would literally have omelets at noon on our radars and gear because the metal was so hot. And we would drink a gallon of water an hour just to stay alive. And people could understand that. People could understand how hot it actually was in the extreme environment that we had to operate in. They got a greater appreciation of what we did. But at the end of the day, there's two sides of the coin and we have to meet each other halfway, kind of like what we're doing now. And I certainly appreciate that connection. I've always felt that it is important to engage with those conversations. And I won't claim that I'm always the best at it, but I completely agree with you that the effort is very important in making first steps. I'd also really love to know in looking at the efficiency and the working philosophy of military operations, whether in combat situations or not, Did you ever yearn for that lifestyle after leaving the service and think there are ways that was run, which I miss currently, that I don't find as many elements of camaraderie or efficiency, etc. in my daily life here in Boston that I almost wish that were my lifestyle still? Yeah, the first and biggest thing that comes to mind is the camaraderie. We were all together. We all did things together. We all socialized together. That's just how we did it. And that is not the way it is in the civilian world. You're very much to large part on your own. Yes, you go with your coworkers, but you don't necessarily eat, sleep, and move from point A to point B with your coworkers 24-7, 365. You just don't do that. So that part I miss. The thing with efficiency is you go to work and you have a clear set of instructions about what is supposed to happen in the workday and how it's going to get done. So there's not a lot of thinking involved, but there is. You don't have to wonder about what to do. The mission's there. You're told what the mission parameters are, and then we just have to figure out how we're going to accomplish the mission. And so that part I miss sometimes. Whereas now being in the civilian world for so long, I like the fact that I can be creative in getting certain things done. I can use methods and means that wouldn't be approved by the military because it's outside the scope of operations and outside the scope of protocol. But my management will like the fact that I took that initiative to solve the problem in a creative way. And it's great that you bring up creativity. I was actually speaking the other day on the phone with a friend of mine who I would identify as very creative, but does not see himself this way. And I mentioned that to ask, as you were allowed more creative freedom in the way you went about your daily life after service, did you feel any stiffness in trying to rework your mental approach to different circumstances, problems, and perhaps even people in your life And essentially, I'm asking, was it difficult to try and think in a more creative way where I imagine your training in many ways, as you expressed, required certain outcomes and certain results, and the protocol demanded a very strict set of approaches or reactions to a task or circumstance? 
We have this saying in the Marine Corps called adapt and overcome. Now, for me, there is a set protocol to use my radar scope to track an aircraft before the senior officer launches a missile at that aircraft. However, we might have to deploy those missiles and set up our launchers in sand one week, but in the middle of the woods next week. So we have to adapt to different environments and different conditions. So when I got to the civilian world and had to reintegrate, and there wasn't a set of instructions for every situation, that adaptation part that the Marine Corps and the military likes to instill in service members came to play. And while I might set up a task list for me to do something, how I do it, it's all on my own. And I appreciate the fact that I can switch from one thing to the next thing without being overwhelmed. And at this point in the conversation, I've been throwing a lot of questions your way, of course, because your knowledge is incredibly relevant to the topic. But do you have any questions about my perspective or any ideas or thoughts that I can offer related to the topic? My question to you would be, there's a perception that millennials are very self-centered, narcissistic, and they don't really care about the world outside of their little cell phone. And I want to ask you, I think that's different. I think there are kids out there, that's not a negative, but there are kids, there are younger people out there who want to understand the broader world. So my question to you would be is, how can I make my experience relevant to them? And how should I approach them if I'm approached by someone asking similar type questions that you're asking me now? Well, I think that's a great question. And honestly, I've observed a similar stereotype, at least as it is conveyed by a lot of non-millennials. In my experience, at least, I know a number of millennials who are very interested, and I would say very empathetic, almost to the point of losing themselves in the mix of socializing and trying to integrate with other people. I think the key is that many millennials, myself included, speak certain technological or cultural languages. And so I would commend you for having your own podcast, Oscar Mike Radio, in which you discuss veterans affairs. And I do think that media like that and other efforts made to try and tell honest stories and express to other people, especially civilians, what life in the military or as a veteran is like, then ultimately I would say that maybe the most you can do in a you can bring the horse to water but you can't make it drink sense that you're doing a great deal to tell those stories. And frankly, you and I met through channels of social gatherings where we encountered one another because of a shared interest in podcasts and we're currently having this discussion as a result, which I really appreciate. I do think a number of millennials, myself included, can feel self-conscious or reluctant to engage in certain discussions where we feel we will be attacked or judged as ignorant or too young to know the difference. And I won't speak for the entire generation, but I will say that I acknowledge I don't have worldly experience, but I do have opinions and perspective. And I think that you and other elders in our society who are trying to express certain stories, especially very particular and nuanced stories like those of the military, would benefit from coming to those discussions with an open mind. And to your credit, I have always observed that you are very open-minded about the way you engage in discussions, and your willingness to engage, to me, not only always comes across, but very legitimately makes me feel more comfortable to engage, which I appreciate because it opens the door to questions that might otherwise feel uncomfortable to ask. 
And as I'm always fascinated with language, I think if people don't understand the proper terms to use in the military or perhaps speak about your service with the Marines in a way that you feel is respectful, gently correcting them and giving them the proper terminology is something I would always advocate for. But do any of those ideas stick out or help illuminate your sense of how millennials might understand a topic like this? Well, the podcast, surprisingly enough to me, has been a way to connect with the younger generation. They're not interested in sitting in front of a TV and having some guy talk to them. They're not interested in lectures. They're on their phones, they're mobile, they're doing their own thing, but they will, from what I've, my experience has been with Oscar Mike Radio. And Oscar Mike in the military means on mission or on the move. Take your pick. And Oscar Mike Radio means that I am on mission or on move for veterans and service members and the people that support them. So what I found is they have a way to listen to my story and they don't feel threatened. They don't feel ignorant. They don't feel stupid to use their words. They just feel like they're at a place where they can understand a little bit about the military because their grandfather really didn't talk about his experience. Their dad really didn't talk about it a whole lot. But one thing I found is this is the future. You guys are our future. And if we don't take the time to tell you and engage with you, then how are you going to be able to base your decisions about what we do as a country to defend ourselves in the future? How's that going to be relevant to you? So I found podcasting to be a great way for me to have a conversation, but also get questions from younger people about what I did and how that's relevant today. Exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head at several points there. And I'm especially grateful for the reminder that in the past, service members, our grandfathers, for example, would not necessarily talk about their time in the service. And in my perception, and that is, of course, limited, I've often thought that it's partially because of the legitimate difficulty and absolute chaos that war can cultivate in the lives of service members, but also that I don't think our larger culture has always been one of conversation. And in my observation of American culture, and perhaps it is in my millennial bubble of American culture, we are becoming more discursive and willing to engage with different topics to try and bridge that gap through conversation itself. And I couldn't agree more that it's very valuable, especially as it relates to political and military affairs, where we as citizens not only have a right to certain information and knowledge, but I would say a duty to engage with people that are different from us and whose experiences do not reflect our own, especially in the military. And I know a number of friends of mine are hypercritical of United States military operations, and I personally need to learn more about how the U.S. military operates, but I do wonder if those friends of mine engage with servicemen and women and try to understand how the military operates on an individual level. And whether you are critical or not, I do think one's understanding can be tremendously enhanced by having those conversations. And to that end, we've been talking about your experience in transition, but for listeners and people like myself who may never serve in the military, what did you learn in your transition out of service that you could apply to a civilian lifestyle? What wisdom did you gain in that process that you'd like the listeners to learn from? So for all of us who serve in the military, one of the constant challenges, whether you served two months ago, two years ago, 20 years ago, is making your military service relevant and explainable to someone outside in a job situation. It was very difficult at certain times to explain how my day-to-day responsibilities could be valuable to a human resources manager, because after all, there's not a really huge market for people who sit at a radar scope 
and shoot missiles at airplanes. There's just not. However, I took the time and I got with some people who helped me transfer those task management skills, time management skills, diversity skills into something that was attractive to potential employers. So I would ask anybody that's listening, when someone is trying to explain what they do in the military, take a minute and try to help them understand what they did is valuable and how. We don't see, say for instance, that firing a machine gun has any application in the civilian world. And frankly, it doesn't. But you had to be qualified to use that piece of equipment. You had to maintain that piece of equipment. You had to transport that piece of equipment and then use it. And there's a lot of things that go into getting to that point to be proficient to do that. So again, it's just both sides taking time to hash out how what I did and others did can translate into what you need. And we have what you need. So I would just ask Kip that people take some time to talk. And as a penultimate avenue of sorts, are there any elements about transition out of service that we haven't yet touched on, which you would like to before we close the conversation? There is. For military people, six months is not enough time. If you know at year two or between year two and year three of your four years that you're not going to stay in, you need to start the transition process then. If you're going to go back home, you need to start getting your resume ready, start talking to people in your community who can help you out and understanding who's going to be your advocate when you get out way before six months. Six months is simply not enough time. If you're going to stay in, then of course, follow the reenlistment process or other process for officers. For civilians, when that service member comes home, make them feel comfortable. Don't make them feel like they're different because they served. Take them out for a beer, take them out for a coffee, take them out to a baseball game, show them around, make sure that you ask them for their resume, look at their resume, talk about what they want to do. You never know what's going to happen if you're aware of what they need. You might be able to plug them in somewhere that they're needed. And I would encourage anyone to try to get those veterans to volunteer in the community because most, if not all, military people have a strong sense of community and they don't want to lose that. And you would be surprised the kind of resources available to you if you engage with that veteran service member. And admittedly similar to that question, what would you like the audience, especially civilians listening, to consider and take away from this discussion? I would hope that you listen to this discussion and understand that we want to engage with you. We really do. It might not seem that way. We might be a little shy. We might be a little reticent to do so, but we really do want to engage with people who are sincere about trying to understand what we want to do. We want to learn from you. You've been out in the civilian world for the last four, eight, 20 years. There are experiences you have that we are desperately trying to connect with so we can get on with our lives. I really love that. And frankly, in context of those conversations, I've often found that I don't feel as capable when thinking of someone who has defended a country and who, as you said, might have expertise with military equipment and certain protocol that seems not only over my head, but so complex as to make me feel almost inadequate as a civilian in helping out. And so I appreciate your point there that There's a great deal of knowledge which can be transferred and shared with those transitioning back home. And I would encourage listeners, again, civilian listeners in particular, to appreciate the creativity that is allowed by civilian life and perhaps also the efficiency that is demanded in a military environment, which may be applied to many circumstances in our lives as civilians, which could be run with greater efficiency. And Travis, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on, but I'd also like to encourage listeners who enjoyed this conversation to check out your podcast, as you mentioned, Oscar Mike Radio. And would you mind giving a summary of your approach there? Oh, thanks, Kip. My approach is simply to have a conversation about military matters 
for this year, I've been focusing on veterans who are active duty who are starting their own businesses or starting their own nonprofit organizations for military or community needs. I found it to be very enlightening on how these people adapt from one part of their lives to the next. So it's a conversation. The water's good. Come on in. And I appreciate that. And to a similar extent, We want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Not only are ours two voices, but mine is certainly one without a great deal of perspective. And so we would always welcome opinions, feedback, or input of any kind from those listening. So please reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with someone you think might enjoy it or learn something. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.